excited for this series, Holy Roar, because I like worship. I, I love worship. And in over a decade in ministry, you wear a lot of hats. And there's been times where, yes, I can play guitar and I can sing. So, like, they'll be like, okay, you got to leave worship. <laughs> and, you know, looking back, uh, whenever I step out of ministry or years down the road, I'll look back and some of my fondest memories of, of ministry will be leading worship alongside Steph in our own crazy journey and ups and downs and how meaningful that was for us to lead worship together. But I also get it. Like, corporate worship might not be your thing. Singing around a bunch of other people, that might not be your jam. And in spite of everything I just said about loving worship, there was definitely a, a, a week, a day in my life where my last impulse was to praise. Like, my last impulse was to step into the courts of God with thanksgiving because it was an encounter night, like the one on this next slide. And that's actually a, a picture from an encounter night. And uh, that was a Wednesday. And on that Monday, Steph and I have been up in D.C. to meet with her uh, neurosurgeon about just the path forward for her health, that she deals with EDS and what's up with her spine, what's up with her brain malformation. And so we were up there for that. But a couple weeks prior, we had taken Raj in for an MRI because they just wanted to see, are these delays he's experiencing, are they permanent? Like, are they literally, like, connections that weren't formed in his brain that we could see on an MRI to let us know what his path is forward? And so as we're getting in the car, we had just had a nice lunch. We're getting in the car to go to Steph's appointment, and we get the call from Raj's folks. And they're like, good news is, brain looks good, but uh, hold, have you ever heard of the Chiari malformation? So, like, obviously, he was born with it. But in that moment, what I'm thinking is I've been praying for years that God would heal my wife, and instead, God said, no, I'm not going to heal it. Matter of fact, I'm going to give it to your son. That's what it felt like in the moment. And I wish I could say, like, my first inclination was to step into the presence of God and to, and to worship and give a sacrifice of praise. But I would say for about 48 hours, I was just furious, mad. There was grief, anger, fear for the future. Just like my son had this raw deal, now he's got to deal with this and, and what that means for his future. And how many of you know what the, the most common command in Scripture is? The most numerous command in Scripture Fear not. What's up? I don't have a giveaway. I'm going to make sure you get one, though, because you nailed that. I'm going to get you something this week. Fear not. Be not afraid. All right, most common command in Scripture. And I know that up here, but in my heart, I was still feeling all kinds of worry and anxiety and fear for the future. Right, I know it up here, but it wasn't here. And that's why I needed another command that's in Scripture some 50 times. And this command is to sing. Sing. We see it 50 times in Scripture we're commanded to sing. And I didn't get a command to go to that encounter night. But if I wasn't on staff, I don't know if I would have been like, yeah, let's go. Let's go for a night of praise and worship. It was a sacrifice of praise. And I probably cried as much as I, as I sang. Jamal was sitting there right with me, right there with me. Be not afraid, right? We know it in our head. Cast your cares. Cast all your worries on God because he cares for you and he loves you. We know it up here. And yet sometimes in our hearts we still feel worry, still feel anxiety. All of fears, extended family just posted up in our heart. And that's, I believe, one critical reason we're commanded to sing, because it get, gets what's in our head into our hearts again. It speaks to a verse and a reality I often reflect on when I think about worship, and it's Colossians 3.16. It says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. See, a lot of us in church if we're honest, we want the message, right? Just get to the word. 
Hit me with the teaching and the admonishing, and a lot of the singing and the worship feels like ancillary add-on stuff that's really not going to benefit me Monday through Friday next week. So let's stop singing this bridge. Let's get to the Bible. But then we don't live the Bible Monday through Friday. It doesn't dwell in us richly during the week. And there can be all kinds of reasons for that, but one I would contend is we don't sing. And that may seem like an odd correlation, but Paul ties them directly together. See, again, sometimes we might think of the teaching and preaching as like the intellectual and the mature, and the singing and the worshiping is, is emotional. And we separate them, and we weigh them differently and, and in light of that. But Paul is saying worship isn't merely emotionalism. It's not emotive for emotion's sake. Paul says something profound in this verse that's always stuck with me, that teaching and singing are inseparable if we want the word of God to dwell in us richly. He says, let the message of Christ dwell in you richly. How? Yes, through teaching and admonishing. But also, you know, stop there, through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And I love when you study the Greek, scholars are like, there's really no distinguishing between the three words he uses here to make them like three separate thoughts. It's almost like he says, sing, and then he underlines it, and then he highlights it by saying it three times. Sing. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Why? Many reasons, but one, again, as we open, is because it brings alignment between our head and our heart, between your head knowledge and your heart's emotions. It, it, worship helps the Word of God, like, marinate within us. Like, I can guarantee you guys probably aren't going to leave here tonight reciting my sermon points, but I leave here every week with some bridge or chorus or melody stuck in my head from the worship we sang. Worship helps the word of God dwell in us when we leave this building. And it helps what is in my head to make it into my heart again. We're embodied souls, and worship helps close that gap between the head and heart. And this isn't just some talk because I'm a pastor and we sing every week at church. Like, this is, this is researched. Academic studies have shown singing in a group releases endorphins and other chemicals into our bodies, which lowers stress levels and diminishes cortisol. Group singing is a natural antidepressant, improving mental clarity and lessening feelings of anxiety. Studies have shown that corporate singing strengthens your immune system. And get this, maybe you're saying, that's all well and good, but you don't want to hear me sing. Well, get this, in 2005, there was a study that looked at the therapeutic effects of group singing, and it found that it had benefits even if it was of, and I quote, mediocre quality. It's why, it's why God says, God commands us to make a joyful noise, not necessarily a high-quality one. Just be joyful. And it's why God's word commands us, again, to sing some 50 times. I love when science catches up to God's word, like, why does God command us to fast or rest or sing? And then you realize all of these things, are they benefit us, just how we were created. God's command for us to worship him isn't because he's up in heaven and he needs to, like, keep his vibes up. Or like he wakes up some days on the wrong side of the pillow and he needs our worship to like pick him up. Like God's throne is not like Santa's sleigh. It does not need our belief and our worship to be effective and functional. Like he, he's on the throne whether we worship him or not. He doesn't need our worship. He deserves it. We are the ones that need to sing. So that's part of the why we worship. It's crucial to know the purpose. Why, why do we sing? This is why. But then this series goes deeper. It's going to look at the how. How we worship. 
based on seven words for praise we see in the Hebrew. Because so often in our Bible, it's just the same word. But these words mean very different things. And we're going to study each of them over the coming weeks, but here's a quick rundown. The first is tehillah. Not tequila, tehillah. The song of praise. It means a new song, a spontaneous song, a personal song rooted in personal experience. You know, sometimes where the band is playing and Chris is like, lift up your, your own song to God. Use your words, right? Praise God for what he's doing in your life. That is a tehillah moment. And then we got zamar, the music of praise. It means to make music, touch the strings of an instrument. So it speaks to, we got a band on stage. You play instruments to go with your worship. Barak is the posture of praise. It means to kneel or salute, to thank God. It speaks to a posture of humility. We've also got tada, the expectation of praise. It means an extension of the hand, a sacrifice of praise. It's a confession of trust in the goodness of God. It's thanking God. When you haven't seen the answer to your prayers yet, it's thanking God when you're still in the valley. It's saying God is worthy because he's worthy, period. And then we got Yoda. It's not actually Yoda, but now I've got every Star Wars fan's attention back. (laughs) It's Yada. But I was thinking about it, rabbit trail. Some worship lyrics sound like they were written by Yoda. Like, in Christ alone, my hope is found. I'd say my hope is found in Christ alone, but you get the little, in Christ alone, my hope is found, right? Like, it's backwards. But yada speaks to posture, speaks to the the hands of praise. It means we worship with extended hands to revere God. But today we'll look at two Hebrew words for worship together, halal and shabak, the celebration of praise and the shout of praise. But first let's look at halal. To run down like its definition in the Hebrew, it means to boast, to rave, to shine, to celebrate, to make a show. And to be clamorously foolish. Now, this word is the root word of hallelujah, right? This exclamation of praise. And, you know, when you probably picture Pastor Fred and I writing sermons, you probably think it's like an intensely, deeply spiritual thing. But as, as I was reading the, the chapter in the book, Holy Roar, which you should pick up because it's literally this thin. You can read it in like a couple hours. But I was reading the chapter on halal, and the first thing I thought about was this old sketch by Gary Owen. And we're going to show a clip of it real quick. Kids got baptized too last year. They got baptized, man. Woo, man. Got baptized black, man. That's the one thing I didn't know. I didn't know. I got baptized at a black church, and that, you know. God, why does it take so long? Black church takes forever. I grew up going to white church, man, you know? Service starts at 10, 10.30. We're at IHOP, already enjoying our breakfast. First, I went to a black church. I didn't know, you know. I'm just, just sitting there, you know, and you know, and, and I was like, why is it taking so long? And then I finally realized everything serves why it's taking so long because when you go to church with white people, man, we don't say nothing, you know. When the preacher's talking, we shut up and we listen, you know. If somebody tries to talk when the preacher's talking, we tell them, shh, zip it, focus, okay? Two more songs, we're out of here. See, I didn't know, I didn't know when you go to a black church, I didn't know that when black people agree with what the preacher's talking about, don't wait. They yelled out right there, they agree. I didn't know, you know? So I was getting upset with the other people in the pews because I thought they were being disrespectful, you know? Because I was just sitting there, 
Preach on it! Are you serious? You're just gonna talk while he's talking? Why don't you zip in focus, man? It's 1.30, I'm ready to go home! Talk about it, are you with him? What? You're allowed to talk? Are you serious? I'm gonna say something. Okay, watch, I'm gonna say something. I hooted you for G's, but come on, it's three o'clock! I want to go home! Another song? Uh, I share that not just for the laugh. It is hilarious. I share that for the laugh. But I also share that because he's in this audience, and he found the audience initially to be clamorous, even foolish for their excessive celebration. He probably came from a church background that some of us come from, where if you raise your hand, you better have a question, and you don't speak up in church. You don't make a show of anything because it's about God. It's not about you. Yet this word halal speaks directly to making a show of things, to rave, to boast, to be clamorously foolish. And we see a similar situation in Scripture where David is leading the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, and it's going to be in Jerusalem for the first time in his reign. So he's excited. This is a party. And at one point, David gets caught up, strips off his outer garment. He starts just dancing, praising, rejoicing, all in this crowd. And in this story, his wife, Michael, is essentially kind of like Gary Owens at the beginning of this skit, like <laughs> upset because she thought it was disrespectful. She's the one like, are you serious? <laughs> right? Zip it. Zip up that zeal because you are out of control. You're embarrassing yourself. You're embarrassing this kingdom. And then in 2 Samuel 6, verses 20 through 22, it says, when David returned home to bless his own family, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. She said in disgust, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. And David retorted to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord, who chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord, so I celebrate before the Lord. Yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. Now, a couple notes. For one, David says, he appointed me as leader of the people of the Lord. David was setting the tone as the leader. Now, this carrying of the ark, man, it was like peppered with shouts and trumpet blasts. It was loud. And it says Hebrew was dancing with all his might in the midst of it. And I love that this Hebrew word for dance is the same word they use for playing and playful. Like David was not all caught up in self-importance and being the king and trying to look dignified. In fact, when David says, I celebrate before the Lord, the word for Hebrew is halal. To celebrate, make a show, even be clamorously foolish. Now, you'll sometimes have people in church dancing like David, being clamorously foolish in a way like in a vacuum. That's cool. That's all well and good. But it doesn't match up with the tone of the service. And so you might lovingly confront that person and, and, and confront them in that, and they'll point to this verse. They'll be like, well, I was just worshiping like David did. But again, David was the leader. Here in worship, Chris is our leader, right? 
And don't worry, Chris, Chris goes in. Right? Chris will dance like David did. David took off his outer garment. When we're up in the online church hub, David puts down, or Chris puts down his guitar. We're like, oh, we're about to, we about to go in. <laughs> Chris put down the guitar. <laughs> Red alert, we're about to dance. But Chris also leads us into contemplation, somber moments of reflection, songs that move us to stillness before God. And as a, as a congregation, we follow his lead because we're not some disjointed People, we're a body of Christ, and he leads us. But secondly, David said he was celebrating before an audience of one. Not I celebrate before my followers. Not I celebrate before my people. He says I celebrate before the Lord twice in the same verse. He's adamant. And the word celebrate, again, is halal, which can be translated to make a show of it. David put on a show, but it wasn't a spectacle for the people around him. It was for God. I think of the conversation that uh, Francis Chan allegedly had with somebody from his congregation back when he was pastoring. They came up to him at the end of service, and they said, uh, I didn't like the worship today. And he said, that's okay. We weren't worshiping you. <laughs> when a warrior or a conquering king returned from battle, it was customary in that culture for the women of the hometown to come out and meet the warrior, this victorious warrior, with singing and dancing. But I love that here we see David. This warrior king that had won battle after battle after battle. He's the one dancing and singing as if he's tipping the cap and giving a nod to God, the one who was so much greater than him. That's why in the Amplified Version it says, I will be humbled in my own sight. He wasn't doing this to make a big deal out of himself, but to humble himself before God. It wasn't a show for those around him to enjoy, nor was it for his street cred as a king. He said, I will humble myself even humiliate myself. He didn't care how people perceived him. He said, I celebrate before the Lord. He's the star of the show. See, when you make a show in worship for other people to see and for people's perception and not God, you're no longer walking in David's shoes. But also, when you hold back in worship because you care too much about people's perception more than God's praise, you're also not walking in David's shoes. But you know, some have said over the years, like, worship, worship feels like a show sometimes. You know, like, kind of feels like a show. It's because it's our halal, <laughs> which literally means to put on a show in Hebrew. We are putting on a show for God. We do it with excellence. So it may feel like a performance at times, but we, like David, we're not doing that for public perception, right? Chris doesn't worship with excellence because he's worried about his street cred. Chris wants to worship with excellence because he loves God. We want to make much of him, put on a show for him, our celebration of praise. But in light of this story... Right, David making a fool of himself, dancing and celebrating. When we turn to famous passages in Psalms where David says, hey, let's halal, where in, in, in Psalm 149.3 he says, let them halal his name with dancing and make music to him with the timbrel and harp. We understand this dance wasn't just like a little two-step or a little sway. No, David danced, danced. <laughs> he was hootie hooing for Jesus. <laughs> now hear me out. Am I saying there's anything wrong with toned down Dignified worship services. That's not the point I'm trying to make. It's not the point at all. Different cultures, too, have different norms, which we'll get to in a second. But the word dignified, as I was studying this week, I was thinking, yeah, there's nothing wrong with dignified church services. But then I started thinking about the word dignified. Because David says, I'll be more undignified than this. Dignified, by definition, speaks to a serious manner that is worthy of respect. And I think sometimes we want to remain dignified in church services because we're worried about our respect and dignity, not God's. When I worship, 
Am I concerned with people deeming me worthy of honor and respect or God? It's not wrong, but which one is priority in that moment? Because you see, Michael's concern wasn't even about David disrespecting God. She was concerned with David dishonoring himself as king. See, one of the greatest mistakes we can make in our worship is we hold back because we're worried about what other people might think. Right? We think we might look foolish, and so we step into Michael's shoes. But David knew the object of the celebration and who he was making a show of. And David wasn't concerned with his own reputation as king and how people might perceive him as much as he was passionate about praising God with his entire being. Mind, soul, heart, body, all of it. Even if it was deemed undignified or foolish by some. So maybe you see Psalm 149.3 and you think that's fine for some, but that's not for me. That's why David makes sure in the very next chapter to say, let everything that has breath, all of us, <laughs> halal the Lord. Let everything that has breath boast. Let everything that has breath rave. Let everything that has breath celebrate. It's our celebration of praise. And it bears repeating. We don't all halal and celebrate in the same way. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. Gary Owen in that skit was speaking to the differences in American culture between predominantly white and predominantly black churches. But think about this. How much greater is the breadth of expression across the entire globe or even history? Like David is talking about a harp and a timbrel. It's like an old tambourine. Yeah, we got stringed instruments and percussion, but it looks very different than a harp and a timbrel. Or consider across the world. Look, through your giving, your generous missions giving, we're able to support missionaries through what's called the International Mission Board. And if you go to their website, there's a great article called Worship Around the World. It's awesome. There's video, there's audio clips, there's descriptions by missionaries and photos of what worship looks like in these unique cultures. And I want to read some of it. It says, South Asian Christians love to worship with what they call action songs. And they encourage enthusiastic participation from everyone, no exceptions. There's foot movement, continuous clapping, sometimes jumping. Their worship is loud and long. Turkish songs tend to be written in minor keys, enabling worshipers to sometimes sing in tones that aptly reflect hearts yearning to bring lament and sorrow before the Lord. Even so, Turkish worship services aren't entirely somber. Turks stand, raise their hands, and clap in syncopated beats. A church service in Russia is typically very traditional and structured. Instrumentation is modest but not minimalist. A keyboard, acoustic guitar, a shaker, and a cajon. In South Africa, worship is often marked by call and response. For instance, a single vocalist starts the song, then the rest of the congregation finishes the phrase, a pattern that continues throughout the entire song. It's like a communal, communal conversation before God. Best for last, I'm partial. India is a country that loves high volume, pomp, and pizzazz. And those characteristics often accompany worship in church. Many Indians move while they worship, whether it's in the form of choreographed actions or spontaneously emerging from a worshiper. Movement is said to communicate that someone is worshiping God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. I share all that because we see there's this beautiful kaleidoscope of cultures that produces all these different celebration styles, worship styles. And I share that because the danger is always thinking that our preference or our style is like the biblical one, right? It's the one. And so we begin to look down on other styles. We got to get out more. <laughs> but I also share this because regardless of how a church in any culture expresses their celebration and passion, here's one thing I do know for certain. God is not up in heaven saying, I wish they would tone down their enthusiasm. I really wish they would dial back their passionate celebration of all that I've done for them, you know, purchasing their salvation, their hope for eternity. I wish they'd dial back that zeal just a little bit. 
You know what? It's because heaven's a celebration. It's a wedding feast. I don't know how long it's been since you've been to a wedding. I did one two weeks ago. It's a party. It's loud. It's a celebration. Do you worship God with the same level of excitement and celebration? Do you worship with halal? Ask yourself, when I enter into worship, am I more concerned with me remaining dignified or God being glorified? When I worship, am I more concerned with myself remaining dignified in front of others and even myself or God being glorified? May we all have a halal at City Life that boasts in and celebrates the goodness of God with all our being, with all our bodies, whatever that looks like for each of us. Raising your hand, clapping, jumping, dancing, hootie-hooing for Jesus, whatever it is, the celebration of praise. But very similar to halal, the celebration of praise is shabak, the shout of praise. This, by definition, speaks to, a, to address in a loud tone, to shout, to commend, to glory, and triumph. Right, a shout of praise that's rooted in the victory we have in Jesus. But you know, there are times, if we're all honest, where we come to a worship service on the weekend and we feel blah. <laughs> Life doesn't feel like a triumph. Caught in the middle of hard weeks, hard months, hard years, whatever it may be. Life is full of seasons, is it not? Ups and downs, seasons that even contain lament and complaints before God. Look, Paul tells that church in Colossians 3, to sing psalms. And depending on who you ask, between half and two-thirds of the psalms are laments. See, Paul makes room for lament. The, the Bible, God's word makes room for lament. And again, worship is a part of letting God's word dwell richly in us. And for this reason, one of my favorites, Eugene Peterson, he used to teach uh, Bible students, and he, when they were studying psalms, he'd have his students go out into the woods and the wilderness and the surrounding areas and shout those psalms at the sky because he figured it gave him a deeper understanding. Because we know many psalms were written in the wilderness as David was running, hunted like an animal to be killed by King Saul. Psalm 63 was written as he was living cave to cave, hiding place to hiding place. And he laments, my whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. But he also writes, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will shabak you. See, when those students shouted those psalms, towards the sky, they weren't just shouting laments, they were shouting shabaks, this shout of praise. And see, in spite of anything I may go through, wilderness weeks, dry and dreary days, whatever it is, I can still lift up a triumphant shout of praise. Because I don't worship because of the current state of affairs in the present. I worship because of what happened 2,000 years ago, that's never gonna change, and I worship because there's an encore coming when Jesus comes back. See, I've had to learn, I don't view worship through the lens of my circumstance. I shabak, and in doing so, I begin to view my circumstances through the lens of worship. I begin to view my circumstances through the lens of this triumph we have in Jesus. See, so many of us let our circumstances dictate our shabak, dictate our worship, dictate our shouts of victory. I had to learn to view my circumstances through this lens of shabak. And the book of Revelation helps apply this lens. Look, you can, you can apply Revelation every which way. There's going to be a new mark of the beast every six to 12 months that people are applying. But bottom line, what I know for sure, you read Revelation, Jesus wins. His bride wins. We win. And I'm making light of it, but I'm also serious. Revelation isn't like some game plan for the future as much as it's good news for today. We can get caught, so caught up in the obscure that we miss the obvious. We win. And our shabak, our shout of victorious praise is rooted both presently and eternally in that victory. In that victory. 
There's a final total triumph we celebrate that's not going to change, and we're going to Shabbat that mess into eternity. In Revelation 14, John gets a sneak peek of this eternal Shabbat, this shout of praise, and it's literally a holy roar. Revelation 14, verses 2 through 3 says, And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of mighty ocean waves and the rolling of loud thunder. It was like the sound of many harpists playing together. Their great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God. See, these 144,000 we see in this chapter, they didn't do it martyrdom. But they aren't portrayed as persecuted saints as much as a conquering army. And this is significant because we see in Scripture, we see in Jewish history that it was almost customary that when they were coming off a victory in battle, they would just have spontaneous song. Think about Exodus when they escaped the Egyptians at the Red Sea. They just burst out in song. They got a song of praise. Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20 does the same when they defeat the armies of Moab and Ammon. They just start praising this new spontaneous song. Even in the books of Maccabees that speak to their revolt and their songs of victory. But what's notable to me is the voice of the 144,000, it echoes the voice of God, right? It sounds like the roar of rushing waters, which like in Ezekiel 43 is used to describe the voice of God, but here's the shouts of the praise of this multitude. It sounds like claps of thunder, which can speak to God's voice in chapters like Job 37 or Psalm 29, but here it's the Shabbat of this heavenly crowd. See, God's voice becomes our voice. Our voice becomes this shout of Shabbat that bears this powerful witness to God. I say it's a powerful witness because we see in Scripture it transcends generations, it transcends nations. Psalm 145 verse 4 says, One generation Shabbat's your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. And it bears witness across nations in Psalm 117 verse 1 where it says, Shabbat the Lord, all you nations. Shabbat him, all you people of the earth. And this verse in Psalm 117 is a preview of the, of the verse we think about often in Revelation 4 where it says every tribe, every tongue, every nation is going to be singing praises in heaven. But again in Revelation 14 we hear praise like roaring waters, rolls of thunder. It's loud. Maybe you've been in a crowd like this where there's roars from beginning to end of like a sporting event. Like believe it or not, <laughs> the team formerly known as the Redskins actually did make the playoffs a while back. And so Steph and I somehow ended up at this playoff game. And, like, football's not Steph's cup of tea. <laughs> but she'll go to the, the sporting events because it's, it's, a, it's a spectacle, right? So if we've been to some regular season games where you're sitting most of the game. You might stand up when something good happens and roar, but it's pretty chill. Playoff game, no. Standing up the entire time, roars the entire time. But here's the thing. Like, most D.C. sports teams, when the stakes were high, they folded like a napkin. So the roars ended by about, like, the second or third quarter. But here's the thing, ours never will. Ours is never going to fade. We win eternally. And it's not just for heaven, right? Triumph is the soundtrack to a life in Christ, even in our todays. Like, what's the soundtrack to your life? Mine is Hans Zimmer. I was in the top 0.01% of his listeners on Spotify last year. Like, I, I, I deserve a, like, signed vinyl from this guy. But I just like to listen to Hans Zimmer when I read my Bible or fiction. But spiritually... What is the soundtrack of your life? Because we'll all experience losses in life. Grief, lament. I remember a season, what isn't a season of surgeries for us, but it was like surgeries, blow after blow, bills to the ceiling. I was talking to my therapist. I was like, it feels like death by a million paper cuts. Like just it's something every five, ten minutes, something else, something else, something else. And it was so hard like to not drift into cynicism. And so here's my wife who's got way more faith than I ever will because it's been refined by so many fires. And she texts me, 
same week. I'm talking like two days later, out the blue, not knowing I ever had that conversation. And she sends me this text, and she says, I feel like this song is a soundtrack to our family. <laughs> and it was a million little miracles. And I'm like, I remember feeling spiritually chin-checked in that moment. I'm like, what am I letting the soundtrack to my life be? Cynicism that's based on circumstances or based on the victory I found in Christ? A Shabbat, right? Recognizing that there are a million little miracles. What's the soundtrack to your life? At least one of the tracks on that soundtrack should be a Shabbat, a shout of praise. There's a sign that hangs in our house, one of those like framed word art pieces, where it says, I'll praise before my breakthrough till my song becomes a triumph. See, when circumstances stir cynicism, and we're still waiting for breakthrough, we can still sing. We can still praise. We can even Shabbat. Because there's a triumph, again, that happened 2,000 years ago. That nothing that happens tomorrow is going to change. <laughs> it's going to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then we get an encore. We get an encore. Sometimes at the end of a concert, there's that roar and people start chanting an encore. Jesus is coming back. <laughs> He's going to be an encore. So we can praise in our present time. And the question you got to ask yourself is, do I let my present circumstances dictate my worship or that eternal perspective? We win. Do I project my circumstances onto my worship or do I project my worship onto my circumstances? Big difference. And we're going to project some worship in a minute. But as we go back into worship and we put all this into practice, the, the late Reverend Maurice Jones, he was commenting on Colossians 3. He once said of circumstances of revival in the church that every great spiritual revival in the Christian church has been accompanied by a corresponding outbreak and development of Christian worship. And this phenomenon was a conspicuous feature in the first age of the church's history with its vivid enthusiasm and his never-ceasing consciousness of the wonder and delight produced by the marvelous achievements of the Spirit of God. Again, I love this quote. Every great spiritual revival in the Christian church has been accompanied by a corresponding outbreak and development of Christian worship. Is revival so elusive because our worship needs development? And not development into something new or altogether new, but something psalmic, something Hebraic, something in these seven words, specifically tonight, halal and shabak. Is our desire to be dignified, in that desire to be dignified, have we lost our halal? And in our daily trials, have we lost our shabak? Because you're gonna have hardships, but that shabak never changes. Let's develop these tonight as we go back into worship. The celebration of praise, the shout of praise. Don't worry, Chris is going to lead us in. He's going to be like David without the outer garment. He can put the guitar down. We could go in. But let's apply these tonight. Let's apply these tonight. But let's pray before we go into worship. You can stand. Let's stand. God, we thank you that you're faithful. God, we thank you that you're good. God, we thank you that your plans for us are to give us a hope and a future. God, we remember these things tonight. We remember that you are a good father. That your plans for us are perfect. Because if we, if we just listen to life, we just listen to our circumstances, we just listen to the enemy, we'd love to convince us differently. But God, I pray that all those thoughts about you, all those verses about you, they would make it from our head back to our heart again. God, as we worship tonight, as we praise you for your goodness, as we praise you for the victory we have in you, that's never going to change. I pray that you take what's in our head and put it in our heart again. Where there's fear, worry, anxiety, bitterness, cynicism, discouragement, whatever may be residing in our hearts that's not of you. I pray that through this worship, God, through this set, you would kick it out. <laughs> you would evict it. And God, I pray that you would come in, as you say in Revelation, to the church, that if we open the door, you'll come in and dine with us as friends. God, so I pray that in this worship, we'd open the door of our hearts. 
We'd open our hands, open our mouth, whatever it looks like, our celebration of what you've done for us. We praise you, Jesus, in this place. Amen.